You can turn over in your Bibles to Judges and the 11th chapter. It was my handicapped brother's brother Morgan's birthday. And there's a fantastic little restaurant in Morrisville called The Little Kitchen that has the best steaks in the world and is one of Morgan's favorite spots to eat. So Morgan ordered a filet mignon. And as it happens, my father was at the salad bar getting Morgan's salad together when he glanced across the sea, none other than Dale Earnhardt standing across the lettuce from him. Dad didn't want to bother him. He had noticed that he was sitting at a table all by himself in the back room away from everybody. But Dad just couldn't resist. He spoke to the famous race car driver and told him that his handicapped son was celebrating his birthday and that it would just make his day if he could come and say hello to him for just a minute. Dale Earnhardt went back to his table, got his drink and his plate, came to our table, and he ate supper with my family that night. He also paid for our meals and gave Morgan his business card that he autographed for him. So after such a night like that, my father asked Morgan how he liked his birthday as we were loading his wheelchair back into the van. Morgan simply responded, the ketchup was good. My brother completely missed the whole point of the meal and all he could think about was how good the ketchup was. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime meal he had just eaten with the biggest celebrity in North Carolina. What a wonderful night. And he comments about the ketchup. Sometimes it seems we just missed the point, doesn't it? Sometimes it just seems that way. But we want to make sure that we get the point. The point of some things that are very important to us as we continue on and and look at this, as uh, I was writing down some thoughts and some notes on this several weeks back, I was drawn to several areas of Scripture, wrote them down and wrote down some things about them. And we've covered just about all of those that I had written down, except for this one. And this one I had written down, was actually pretty excited about some of the things in it. But then as I, we got into some of the others, I said, well, Father, you know, we've already covered most of those principles that we're going to get into, in, into this one. And so... Uh, not really seeing the, the, where the difference was. I was ready to put this one on the back shelf and bring this out sometime later. But as I was meditating on some things here for this week, I saw this in a, in a different light that we can bring it out, not so much in the previous light, but in, in this one, that will help us in this. So if you would, turn over, if you're not already there, turn over to Judges, the 11th chapter. We're going to look at a, I think, a very interesting story, somewhat misunderstood, but you won't have any misunderstandings about it by the time we look, reread the whole thing. And see what the Bible has itself to say. But as we get into this, draw you to your outline where it says, Most of our troubles come from thoughts concerning what is happening to me now, what will be, or what has been. Most of our troubles come from thoughts concerning what is happening to me now, what will be. And what has been. We all have a past, present, and a future. But it's our thoughts of those things that bring along a lot of trouble. If we can get our thoughts of those things correct, we certainly can eliminate a lot of that. We're skipping over Judges chapter 10, and you can go back there and see this. And this is the setup for chapter 11 and some of the battle that had gone on. But Ammon had crossed over in chapter 10, had crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah. Now, Ammon is one of the sons of Lot. 
He had two sons. And if you want to go back to the story, I wrote the outline, for, I wrote the reference for that in your, in your outline. You can go back there and, and read that. It is a terrible story about how these two sons came about. But if you want to go back there and you can read that on over, we're not getting into that part of it right now. But you had Moab and Ammon are the sons of Lot. And they are on the other side of the Jordan. And when Israel was wandering around, God wouldn't let them fight against Ammon and Moab because they were brothers or, you know, in, in the same family as Abraham and, and all. And, and so they weren't to do that. But here Ammon has crossed over the Jordan. If you know the history of, of Israel and how the land was divided, you know that Israel possesses lands on both sides of the Jordan at this time. That they had areas on the west side which was the main area they were given. This is where Judah and Benjamin and a lot of the other tribes had, had been put to. But there were a couple of tribes who decided that the land on the west side of the Jordan was really good. They looked at the fields. They said, we had a lot of flocks. This land will serve us just fine. Moses was made at that request when they first made it. But they said, no, no, no. We're still going to cross over. We're still going to do battle and, and help them conquer all the land. And then we're going to come back here and this will be our inheritance. And we're not going to be mad that we didn't get an inheritance on the other side because this will be our inheritance. And so the Moses was okay with that and they went ahead and they divided the land up and some of the tribes got places over here and some were over on the east side, west side of the Jordan. So that's the history of, of this. But here in Judges chapter 11, just at the end of chapter 10, they were looking for someone, a judge, basically to be, to be raised up, who would say who would come and deliver them from this battle with Ammon. So now we get into a little history of Jephthah. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. And he was the son of a harlot. That doesn't sound so good, does it? And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now, we're not given a whole lot of the history of this. Just kind of spit out there. It would seem that Jephthah was older than the other ones. And so his father had this son through a harlot. Was not a concubine. It was a harlot. So you can kind of imagine the scenario that would have brought Jephthah about. But he was being raised in his father's house. And he had children with, the, with his wife. And, and how do you think that all went? I don't know how I always looked at them, but I'm, I can't imagine that went all that well. But anyway, they had children. And as they grew up, when they were young, there wasn't a big deal. But as they grew up and they determined, you know, who Jephthah was from and that he wasn't of their, uh, their mother, they decided to rise up and against Jephthah and to drive him out. And so that's the history that had gone on before. And so Jephthah was a mighty man of valor and he was driven out by these folks. He may become more of the mighty man of valor after he left and we see that in the other part of his history, we find out some of the things he had done. So Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Now you all know where Tob is, right? I don't have to get into that a whole lot. Everybody knows where Tob is. I mean, this is not a very common city mentioned. In, how many times do you find Tob mentioned in the Bible? How many of you never even heard of Tob before? What in the world is this place? Well, Tob is a city 
that is on the east side of Jordan. It is beyond the territory that Israel had conquered before. It is further west. And so it would be in the territory of Ammon. And he's dwelling out there amongst them. So now you all know where, where Tob is. All you folks who have quick verse can go on home. You can look it up. And it'll tell you right where, right where it's at. If you don't have quick verse, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> and it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And we read about, we didn't read about it, but I told you the summary of that in chapter 10. And that's what he's referring to here. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. So the folks of Gilead knew where he was. And they wanted to go out there and get him. They're looking for a man over in the, the end of chapter 10. They're looking for someone who's going to be raised up who's going to come and help them with this. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? How many times have you had people come into your life, you know, they're, they're, they leave you alone, they leave you alone, and all of a sudden they have a problem and they think you can help them with it and there they are at your door, calling you up on the phone, sending you a letter, doing something of that nature. Well, he, they had it back then too. People are just people. They just do the, seem to do the same things over and over again. But they come on over here to, to Jephthah and he uh, recognized right away, you're just coming because you need me. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now. So they're not even trying to hide it. Yep, we have a need. We need you. So that's why we've come. That you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not according, do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. So he agrees to come, help them out, lead their, their army. And in verse 12, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me? that you have come to fight against me in my land. Now, I don't know how much Ammon was aware of where he was before. They all, people back then always seemed to be aware of everybody. I don't know how that was. They didn't have email. They didn't have the 10 o'clock news. They didn't have the internet. But somehow they seemed to know everything about everybody. Oh yeah, you're so-and-so. and You came back to do this and such. And I don't know how they seemed to know it, but we'll assume that they probably didn't know where he came from, even though it's... Not mentioned one way or the other. So why have you come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. You have to be careful with things. And we'll see this a whole lot in this day and age as well. That a lot of times people make pronouncements of facts that are not facts. They say things that are not true. And because they are convinced they are true, and because they can show some kind of semblance to, to it being true, they expect that, well, you're just going to have to abide by that and, and, and go that way. And that's not necessarily the case. I like what Ronald Reagan used to say. He would say, trust, but verify. I'll tell you what, that's sometimes a good, good idea. Have some trust, but verify the thing. 
So here it is, Ammon and Moab. They're saying, you stole land from us. And, and Jephthah, now this tells you a little bit about Jephthah. He knew some of the word. He's been taught some of the word because he's able to guide them through history and tell them what happened. And he's actually pretty accurate in the things that he says, more so than you'll just get reading the pages of, of uh, what, he's, what is written about him. Now the area east of the Jordan is and does belong to Ammon and to Moab. Israel now owns part of that. So you might wonder, how does Israel get hold of land that was formerly Ammon and Moab's and it not be Ammon and Moab's? How does that come about? So he's going to get into this. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king and the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom, the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Shihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Shihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Then Israel gained possessions of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabuk. These are rivers that are on the east side of Jordan. And from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has disposed the Amorites from before His people Israel. Should you then possess it? So what he is saying here is this. In case you're not following all that, you're not quite aware of all the geography. Israel wandered after they came and the twelve spies were sent in. And of course they reject going in. They traveled quite a while. Again, if you have a copy of Quick Verse... You can go on your, your quick verse and take a look at the, the path that Israel traveled. And if you pull that map up, it'll show you they went down south and they went back up north. Then they went to the uh, east of the Jordan and circumvented some lands there until they came all the way up to the northern part for the second entry up around the area of Jericho. And that was the path that they had followed. And some of the stories that went along there was they asked for passage through certain lands, but they weren't granted the passage. They asked for passage through Moab. Then they promised we'll stay on the path. Whatever we take, we'll pay for. And uh, Moab didn't trust them. And that didn't, uh, didn't go so well. But God says, nope, I don't want you to go out there and to conquer Moab or Ammon because they were children of Lot and so forth. We already went over that. So they weren't allowed to do that. But originally, Ammon and Moses had the to- whole territory of the east side of Jordan. One was on the nor- northern part. The other was on the southern part. And their borders touched. But the Amorites came along. And what the Amorites did was they deposed the Ammonites or the the, um, the the Ammonites and the Moabites from their land, and they pushed the the Ammonites further north, and they pushed the Moabites further south, and they inhabited the area in the middle, from the Arnon to the Jabuk. And that was the area that 
that the Amorites had conquered. And so as Israel came on up and they first asked for permission to go through Moab and they were not granted permission. But God says, don't go over there and fight them. And Moab didn't come out and fight them. Then they went up and they had the, the Amorites and they said, can we pass through your land to get to our promised land? We don't want your land. We just we want to go over here. And he says, no, but he didn't trust them at all. And so he came out to do battle with them. He's going to wipe them out. And God says, don't you worry about it. We're going to get in there and we're going to knock these guys out. And they did and they went and they conquered and they defeated the Amorites. Not the Ammonites, but the Amorites. And defeated them and took their land as a possession. So now they have the land of the Amorites who once had, who had land that was once occupied by the Ammonites in the north and the Moabites in the south. But they did not fight the Ammonites to take it. They fought the Amorites who had taken it from them. Did they follow all that? <laughs> all right. It's not real key that you follow that whole part of it there, but just so you understand, this is, this is what uh, Jephthah is getting at. So he knows his history because he's able to recite this whole thing as to how they came into the land and, and all this sort of stuff. And then he gets into something really interesting that it's really easy just to read over. When was the last time you read Judges chapter 11? Last week? Two weeks ago? <laughs> Yeah, Judges is not a real popular book, is it? So the Lord God deposed the Amorites from before his people Israel, should you then possess it. So Ammon and Moab did not repossess their land that they lost. Israel knocked them out. So what does it say? Now, this has a lot of present day applications, folks, if you think about this. What he is saying is when another country came and conquered a land, and Israel came and deposed them. Whose land is it? Israel's. It is Israel's. Now, Israel didn't go trying to... T they had one area of land they were supposed to take back then. This was not one of them. They took this land because the, kings, the king there was aggressive and decided not to trust Israel. Now, when you get into the modern day part, how did Israel get involved in the six days war? Did Israel start the fight? No, Israel did not start the fight. Others started around them. And so they eventually got tired of putting up with all this stuff. And they went out and they conquered them and in six days, knocked out a whole lot of territory, took a whole lot. And then the Palestinians were griping because they went to battle to take Israel's land, lost the battle and lost their land. And they said, but it belongs to us. And that's where the, the battle comes in. So in God's eyes, whose land does Israel now belong to? Israel. Israel. And if you get back into who, who got it before, well, who conquered it before and then who gave it to Israel? So anyway, that's not something we have to get all into. But I, I just get irritated at our country in previous administrations, and we'll see where this one goes to, but I know previous administrations have always put pressure on Israel to give up land and give up this and give up that. And, uh, and they do, and it doesn't amount to anything. It doesn't bring peace, doesn't bring all that sort of stuff. So we'll see how we go here from, from this one on out, but it just isn't helping them out. But we're here to look at Jephthah. Verse 24, Will you not possess whatever Kamosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. Now, he is not verifying that Kamosh is a good God 
or that he is a God. He is simply saying that he is your God. And if he is your God, then whatever he gives you to possess is yours. But leave it alone. Whatever our God gives us to possess is ours. Don't you mess with it. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? What's he saying here is this. The land that you are fighting over, part of it was Ammon, part of it was Moab. Why is it that Moab to this day has never brought this issue up? Now, Moab has battled Israel, but not over this land. And so he is basically bringing Moab in. They're in the same boat. They lost land to the Amorites. We took it from them. They're not in there contending for it. If you wanted it so bad, I think he's basically getting that. If you wanted it so bad, why didn't you take it? But you didn't do it. When Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aror and its villages and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Here is what's really interesting. And this verse shows you Jephthah knows what he's talking about. But it's really easy to skim over and to miss it. He says that for 300 years, this has not been an issue. Why is it an issue now? If you go through the genealogies, you will find out, if you count them up, because you can do that, you can go through the genealogies and count up, and you can find out the time frame from when Israel took these lands till now. You know what time you come up with? 350 years. But Jephthah said, how many? 300. Now, if you take the 350 years for which Israel, 350 years ago, Israel took these lands, you can subtract 50 of those years for times when they did not completely control that area because they were oppressed by enemies. Jephthah knows his stuff. Verse 27, Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, Israel is not bringing this to a point of judgment. Ammon is. They are the ones who initiated the attack. They are the ones who are the aggressor. They are the ones with the gripe. They are the ones who are bringing this up. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Yeah, some people just don't like to listen, right? So Ammon's upset over all this stuff. Jephthah comes in. He has a cool head about it. In verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Now, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Isn't that usually a good thing? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon you? This is good. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon you. But understand, just because the Spirit of the Lord came upon you doesn't mean that everything you utter will necessarily be God. People who have the Spirit of the Lord upon them can say flesh things. It's not advisable, but you can still do it. 
So here's Jephthah's problem. Will what I face now defeat me in the future? That is Jephthah's problem. That's why he's making this vow. That's why all this stuff is going on because he is wondering. Apparently the people of Ammon are a, a substantial force. And I don't, we don't really read from this that we have all Israel in the battle. We have some of Israel in the battle, but not necessarily all Israel in the battle because there's really no one leading all of Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And those people that are affected by Ammon will probably want to do something about it. And most of the areas that are affected are the ones that are involved. But here's his problem. Will what I face now defeat me in the future? Isn't that all of our problems? Just about all of them right now? I mean, will what I face now defeat me in the future? Will the problem I face in my job defeat me from keeping that job? Will the problem we face in the economy defeat me so I lose my house or lose my car or, or don't have money for this or don't have money for that? Is that not the way we sometimes look at problems? Is what I am facing now going to defeat me in the future? Because that's our concern. If you knew... If you knew that what you're facing now wouldn't defeat you in the future, would you be half as worried? Concerned? Anything like that? How many of you ever bought stocks? I mean, you buy the stock, there's an uncertainty that is there when you buy that stock, right? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to benefit you? Is it going to hurt you? And so there's an uncertainty that's there. The thing that pulls a lot of people in is there's a tremendous upside. However, there's also a tremendous downside. How many of you have ever thought, boy, I wish I could go back. And when Apple first came out, when IBM first hit the market, when Microsoft was first offered up, oh, I wished I would have had the knowledge that I would have bought that. What would have given you the assurance of buying? The knowledge of the future. If you would have known in the future or if you would have known that the future would have been good if you made that decision, doesn't that make it a whole lot easier? How many of you have some jobs that you've accepted that did not work out so well for you? How many of you would like to have known that ahead of time and just avoided it? How about some friendships didn't work out so well for you? How many of you would like to have known that before? The same thing we face that Jeff's is facing. I'm facing a problem now. I'm going to go after this problem. But it sure would be nice to know that God's on my side and that God's going to help me out and that I win. That sure would be nicer. How many of y'all like to have that too? I want to be able to know that I can win over this. Because the problem that comes in is our uncertainty. If I do this, will it have a positive effect? If I take this job, will it have a positive effect on my finances? If I buy this stock, will it have a positive effect? What's going on? Well, if I always knew the outcome, or if I always know I could come out on top, would worry and anxiety stand a chance? If I always knew the outcome, no matter what you got involved with, you always knew the outcome. Or if I always knew I would come out on top, would worry and anxiety stand a chance? Would it? No. 
Think of it this way. If you got yourself a basketball team, you got five guys, six guys, seven guys, however many you have on your team, and they're all seven foot ten inches. The shorty on the team is seven foot six. He's your point guard. He's the shorty. Every single one of them can hit nine out of ten times from the three-point line. Every single one of them can hit 99 out of 100 foul shots. And you're going to play a local high school team. Are you scared? Are you nervous? Is this a big deal? If your favorite professional football team was going to take on your favorite high school, who do you think would win? And is the professional football team concerned? No, why? Because they're pretty certain of the outcome, aren't they? They're, we're pretty sure of how this is going to work out. I mean, the seven foot ten guys can take the day off and probably still beat that basketball team. That's not a hard thing to do. If we always knew the outcome, wouldn't be a lot more sure as we're going through it? This is what Jephthah is trying to do. He is trying to become certain of the outcome. He is not sure how this will pan out. So because he's unsure, what's he do? He resorts to something to try and bring about an assurance. Just because something brings you assurance in life does not mean it's from God. Verse 34. Well, we didn't read 33. And he defeated them from Aurora as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel Keramim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, You have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity. My friends and I go. And she said, go. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father. And he carried out his vow with which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel. that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Oh, how horrible. Now, what does this sound like to you? Does it not sound like dad just sacrificed his daughter up on the altar like Abraham tried to do with his son? You would be incorrect. That did not happen. First off, that would be an unlawful sacrifice. When Abraham was going to bring his son up, the laws of the sacrifice were not as clearly spelled out. But now they are quite clearly spelled out. And they know exactly what is a lawful sacrifice And what is an unlawful sacrifice? And your sacrifice in your daughter on an altar would come under an unlawful sacrifice. 
You are allowed to sacrifice certain things. Sheep, they're common. That's a good one. Oxen, pigeons, they can come in. And they're all, different ones are all listed as to what can come out. You want to know something that you will not find in there? Cats. Cats are an unlawful sacrifice. You know what else is not there? Dogs. Dogs are an unlawful sacrifice. God does not want dogs as a sacrifice. If you go through the Word of God, He does not have anything good to say about dogs. There are a lot of bad things. And cats are completely left out of the Word of God. Gone. Don't need them at all. Doesn't even want to mention them. Well, anyway, you can go on through. There are certain things that are lawful sacrifices and certain ones that are not. Now, the problem comes in here is that he says that he was going to offer up a burnt sacrifice. So that means whoever, whatever greeted him at the door was going to be burned up. I don't know what he was thinking was going to greet him at the door. Maybe he was thinking his best prized sheep. His favorite pet lamb. His lead oxen. I don't know what he thought was going to greet him at the door. It was customary that the ladies in the town would come out and greet the warriors on the road. And so really, if that custom was something he expected, she wouldn't have been home. She would have been out on the road. But whatever the reason was, we don't know what happened. She is the one who greets him and he is... He did not expect this. Understand this. This was not a plan. He was expecting to sacrifice something valuable to God, but not his daughter. So if he doesn't burn her on the offering, what does he do? He gives her to God. And she becomes a servant in the house of the Lord and a virgin all of her life. She will never marry. Therefore, she will never carry on his name. Even though she wasn't a son to carry on his, his last name, there will be no descendants and there will be no son, grandson of Jephthah from this point on. This was going to be it. Did not kill her. No, he does not kill her. That would be unlawful and not something that... that, And he would have known that was not lawful. If a cat had greeted him, he could not have sacrificed the cat. If a dog had greeted him at the door, he could not have sacrificed the dog. So if his daughter greets him at the door, surely he cannot burn her on the offer on the altar and sacrifice her. It is not a lawful sacrifice. And this is a man who knows the books that have been written well enough to recite history from the top of his head. He can tell you, I'm sure, what the sacrifices are. So for all the things and all the supposition that's been out there that Jephthah killed somebody, this is a human sacrifice and all that, I don't buy it. Get to heaven, God says, Steve, you're wrong, fine, you know, I'll take that. But everything points to her virginity. And if that's the case, if it was they were going to take her life, I think more would have pointed to her life instead of the fact that she hadn't married and had no kids and that he had no other kids beside this. Something would have been brought, drawn more than that. So, anyway, rest assured, God didn't say, you know what, you promised, so you go ahead and do it. Don't think that was quite the case. In with that. Now we have that cleared up and we don't have any problems with, with thinking about all this sort of stuff. We have to get into why does he make the promise? The Spirit of the Lord had already come upon him. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. He was going to use him and bring about a great victory. Why does he feel the need to rise up and say, uh-uh, 
I need to make a promise. I need to say, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. How many have ever made a, a, a pact like that with God? God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. I mean, it's much like your children coming to you and say, Mom and Dad, if you buy me a car, I'll give you one of my sticks of gum. Are you going to do it for that? Uh-uh. But sometimes that's what it is that we're offering God something small. So many times we can be convinced that God wants something from us to perform His Word. We can get convinced of that. I can begin to think, well, God needs me to stop sinning. God needs me to get serious about this. God needs me to rise up early in the morning and pray. God needs me to stay up late at night and pray. God needs me to read the Bible more. God needs me to study the Bible more. God needs this and God God wants this and I have to bring this out. And if I don't bring this out, then God's not going to come through. And the only thing that's stopping me from receiving from God is the things that I'm doing. I need to do this and I need to do that. We come up with all this stuff. If we knew the thing that we faced wasn't going to finish us off, we wouldn't be pulled into this direction. Now, why does God perform His Word? I wrote down four reasons. You might be able to add some more things to it, but I think this is fairly complete anyway. God performs His Word to show His love. He just wants to show people He loves them. Why did Jesus do some of the miracles that He did? Some out of compassion. And Jesus had compassion for the multitude. And Jesus had compassion for the widow and raised up her son. So sometimes just out of his love. He just loves us. So he just does it. Why do you sometimes bless your kids? Is it not sometimes just out of love? You're not asking them to do a chore or do something. You just, you know what? I just want to do this for you. To show his love. Another one is to demonstrate his power. Why did God kill off the Egyptians? Why did God do, run the plagues? Because God was going to demonstrate who is God. He was demonstrating His power. And if you go through the, the, the plagues of, Israel, of Egypt, you will see that each plague attacked one of their gods. And God is showing, I'm God, they're not. God was demonstrating His power. When the children of Israel would wander around the wilderness and had a pillar of fire above them at night to keep them warm and a cloud by day, what was God doing? demonstrating His power. If you came up and said, how come that fire follows those people? It's the power of God. When God came on Mount Sinai and thunders, noises, what was He doing? Demonstrating His power. That, that mountain was scarred from that point on. If you were here a couple years ago when we, when we went over on Wednesday night, where the real Mount Sinai is, not the one called Mount Sinai, but the real one, you can go out to the real one. You can see that mountain is still scarred from the power of God up on top. God performs His Word to fulfill His promise. That's the thing that He'll do. He will fulfill His promise. When Moses is up on the mountain pleading for Israel's life, what does he hold God to? You promised. How many times did David hold God to the promise? God fulfills Performs His Word to fulfill His promises. And lastly, God performs His Word to accomplish His plan. He's got a plan. He's going to bring it about. Why does He do the things in the book of Revelation that He does? He's demonstrating His power. He's accomplishing His plan. These are the things that move God to perform His Word. Not our puny little promises. 
You will be hard-pressed to go through the Word of God and find a time that God did something because somebody made Him a promise that He wanted. Oh, you'll do that? I really want that. I don't have that. Oh, all right. That's not God. Well, we read this story and we sometimes think that it is. God responds to faith, not offers. Stop making God offers. He does not respond to offers. God, I'll do this if you'll do this. I put this in your outline too. God is not a traitor. Not a traitor. A trader. He does not barter and trade. He does not, you know, try and whittle down your price. Well, I don't know if that's quite worth that. How about, how about this instead? He doesn't sit there and barter. He's not a trader. God is a fulfiller. He fulfills His promise. He fulfills His plan. He does the things that He said He would do. So understand this. Our faith accesses His promises. Our faith accesses His promises. He makes the promise. We access it through faith that He makes the promise. You cannot access the promises of God through promises of your own. That is not in the Word of God. You can promise all that you want to. But if, but what you end up doing is, God, I am going to do this because I want something. Boy, that's the thing God wants to jump at, isn't it? God responds to faith. He does not respond to promises. Yeah, but it worked for Jephthah. Why? Because God wanted to accomplish His plan and God wanted to demonstrate His power and show His love for His people. That's why. You go back into chapter 10 and you read that over and they're there pleading with God, deliver us from Ammon. And God says, no. What do you mean no? Come on, deliver us from Ammon. He says, no. You guys keep going after all these other gods. Let them deliver you. I'm done. No, no, no. And they repent and they, they, uh, they get going and God gets moved to compassion for them. He says, all right, we're going to go find somebody, raise them up and bring them in out. Got into the love side. But he doesn't get moved by because I make this promise or I make that promise. Don't get into that. Don't lose the importance of faith in his word. Don't lose it. There is an importance of faith, our faith, in his word. And it's so easy for us to wander away from that and to drift from it. But you have to hold hold fast to that. Now, some weeks ago, some time ago, quite a number of weeks ago, we went over things, you know, podcasting and all that sort of stuff, all that spiritual things. And some of you went on out there and, and you started to make some subscriptions. How many of you have uh, subscribed to some of the, the podcasts I told you about that were my favorites? A couple of you. Now, if you've been listening to that and you're listening to the podcast from my church, there was a special guest speaker. In fact, there's, I think Pastor Bob went away for a while because we've got like two weeks of no Pastor Bob. And we're, we're uh, getting some of these other folks in. But one guy came on in, and you might remember this, and he re- related an experience he had when he was younger of a professor who took a bicycle wheel and spun it really fast, spun it so fast, they said you could feel the wind out in the audience. Anybody re- listen to that one? 
And he took that bicycle wheel and he put it into a suitcase. And he put that suitcase on the floor and he told the folks in the class, they come on over and try and kick this thing over. And they did. They came over and they kicked that thing and that suitcase wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't move. They could not tip that suitcase over for anything in them. It was because the bicycle wheel, the way it was spinning, was acting as a gyroscope. And it held that thing in place. Because those things are powerful. I was actually out looking around trying to find one, just a little one that I could show you. How many of you all play with them when you were little? Science classes and stuff. Oh, they're phenomenal to play with. They are just so much fun. To feel all that force that's in there for that thing turning around and, and just the, the forces that it can generate. But, you know, they use these and a lot of uh, high-tech things that I have out today to, to keep them where they need to be and keep them in place. But sometimes we lose the purpose of the things that God has in our life. And the gyroscope that is to begin us is His Word. It is to be something that causes us to not be moved. Not be swayed to the left, not be swayed to the right, but to hold the path, to keep the direction going. Many things that move through space, through the sea, through the air, use these to keep them on, on the path that they're supposed to be on. What is the purpose of church, the gifts and believers? We need to know what those purposes are in order for these things to have that work on the inside of us. If we are going to be steadfast, stable and firm, if we are going to be faithful and true in our life, these are things that have to be in place. And sometimes we lose sight of what all this is supposed to, to work out. Well, I've wrote in here, and I probably have a little bit more of my outline on this than you do. But understand the purpose of church. The role of church in your life. Sometimes we can get veered off of the role of church in our life. And we think church is supposed to be bringing us to an emotional high. It's supposed to come out of there. Oh, I felt so good today. The worship was so wonderful. Oh, I came in sad and now I'm happy. Glory to God. And we think that's the purpose of church. And thank God that church can minister to your emotions. Thank God that you can get into a worship service and your emotions can get ministered to. And then God can show up in the worship service and He will minister to your emotions. Thank God for that. God does minister to your emotions. But that's not the purpose. Because you are not an emotion, are you? That's good because you'll be changing from day to day. How many of your emotions change from day to day? You're here, you're there, you're there, you're there. You'd be a different person each day. No, the Word of God tells us that you are a spirit man. You have a spirit. You are a spirit, not an emotion. You are a spirit, not a soul. The thing that God has to minister to the most in your life is your spirit. Secondarily, is your soul and your body. Don't you know that God ministers to your body? Have you ever asked God for, for healing, had hands laid on you, and you got healed? That's God ministering to your body, not your spirit. So God will minister to your body. God will minister to your soul. But He is most interested in ministering to your spirit. If God is most interested in ministering to your spirit, what is the thing that the enemy would want to attack the most? The ministry to your spirit. 
If he can attack the ministry to your spirit, what happens to your spirit? It begins to get weaker. If you were in battle, picture some of the great World War II battles that had gone on. And here you have the German army up against the American army, the Allied army. And they're battling each other. And they can come against each other with brute force. And the brute force of the Germans and their tanks and their planes against the brute force of the Allies and their tanks and their planes. Or you can find a way to circumvent and cut off the supply. If you can cut off the supply to the tanks and the planes and the army, then what happens to the strength of that army? It diminishes and it becomes weak. And this tactic was used constantly, especially in World War II. I get so disappointed talking to my son and others about what little they cover on these things in, in, in school. Sometimes after church, you know, we're talking about these things at the table. and oh, It's just, it is a shame how little people know about the things that are going on in, in some, of these, some of these places. But we need to know about, about history. We need to know about the Word of God. There is a purpose the church has for you, a purpose that God has for you in church, and that is for your spirit to be built up. Picture it this way. The Word of God in you is like that gyroscope that goes around and around and around and around. And as long it is, as it is moving at the speed it is supposed to be moving, it is impossible to move you. So what, if you are the enemy, do you need to do? Hit them with more force? No, all you need to do is what? Slow down the wheel. Get whatever is getting that wheel to go faster and faster. Get it to slow down. And then slow down a little bit more. And then a little bit more. And a little bit more. And then what happens? Just tip it right on over. Doesn't Jesus teach us that it... That if we are built upon the rock, when the storm comes, we shall not be moved. And that the one who's built upon the sand gets knocked over is because the word was not stirred up on the inside. Here's one of the purpose. Here's why, why I view our purpose as a church in your life. To first off, or we'll reiterate in here, we'll just fill in the, the blanks for you. Revelation of unknown in renewal of known truths for the resisting of false pursuits. Revelation of unknown in renewal of known truths for the resisting of false pursuits. Every time that we get into the Word together, we should be spinning that wheel, taking that wheel and moving it on. We will never have, never have had, never will have a time that we do not delve into Scripture. Because if you do not delve into Scripture, you are not spinning that wheel. But if you get into Scripture and you do not look at Scripture from the idea of faith in God, then you can preach for a month of Sundays and it's not going to do you any good. Because it is faith that pleases God. It is faith that moves God. And it's faith that receives from God. It is by faith that we are saved and it is by faith that we are preserved. We must have faith in His Word. So what the devil constantly tries to do is to get to erode that from you. He gets you to not listen to as much during the week. You know, some of you folks come out on Wednesdays and Sundays. 
And then he starts whittling away what you can do on Wednesdays. Start whittling away what you can do on Sundays. And well, I'll make up for it. I'll get the MP3. And then there's not enough time to, to listen to that. And, you're, and the, the wheel is slowing down. But you don't notice. You don't notice it. You won't notice that the wheel's slowing down. You just start to slow down a little bit on that thing. And then all of a sudden something hits you and it knocks you over. And you're thinking, where did that come from and why did I get knocked over? Purpose of church. Certainly the purpose of our church is to bring revelation of the unknown and renewal of known truths for the resisting of false pursuits. Satan is constantly trying to dangle things out there. Pursue this. Go after this. And it looks right. It looks spiritual. And it will affect you negatively. We don't have to every Sunday. We don't have to teach you new truths. A lot of times we can just renew the old ones. The things that you know. And by renewing them, you keep spinning that wheel. Faith in God. Faith in God. Faith in God. I've seen more people in the times that I've grown up since the time I've been involved with faith folks and word of uh, word churches and such. And as soon as they begin to want, I mean, folks, I tell you, I, I serve side by side in some churches I've been at, serve side by side with people who believed as strongly as I do now that God performs His word, that God is the healer, that God has made promises in His Word and that He answers those promises. And I have gone back and seen some of those people. They got wandered off. They got pulled off. They're in a church now that's not even a faith church. Doesn't believe God for anything. And you talk to them about healing. I don't think God heals today. You should see my job when they're talking to me about that. You've got to be kidding. We ministered on this stuff side by side. Exhorting people, teaching people, going through the Word of God. We would sit down and have lunch together and sharpen each other on this and, and talk about what? Nah. And the, I don't really think the gifts are for today. I think they were for before. And you think, how can that happen? It's easy. The gyroscope got slowed down. Pretty soon it was stopped. And then they began to pursue things that weren't necessarily God. But they couldn't recognize it. They thought it was God. And they begin to veer off on that. And they begin to go off. And you don't know how many of these people that I have talked to that have gone off in the area of adultery, that have gone off and, and I mean, in the church. They were still working in a church, doing things in the church, went after the secretary. <laughs> I could tell you stories of these things and I just come out of there shaking my head and say, Dear God, dear God, I know my gyroscope could be stopped if I let it, but I need to make sure I keep it going. So that's why I keep listening to as much word as I do because I have to keep it going because things will come against you and they try and get it to slow down. I want to always stay at the forefront of you guys that I listen to more word than all of you do. And I will keep telling you about it because I hope to spur you on to listen to more, to keep getting into it. Because if you don't, it can get slowed down. What you believe so strongly today can be eroded and eventually you don't believe it at all. Jesus teaches us in the Word of God that when the seed was sown, some came and snatched the seed as soon as it was, it was sown. Some of the thorns came and grew up and the seed that eventually sprang to life began to be crowded out with the cares of this life. Now, see, these things can be wore, wore you out. You want to be faithful? You want to continue to be true to the things of God? You have got to keep that steadying force alive in your life. Revelation of unknown. Renewal of known. Truths for the resisting of false pursuits. 
because false pursuits are out there. They get you to pursue this relationship. They get you to pursue this job. They get you to pursue this opportunity. And that opportunity, that job, that relationship is a stumbling block for you down the road. I put it three words this way. Reveal, renew, and resist. Reveal, renew, and resist. If you want to get into that place where you can resist any temptation, any distraction, get into the Word of God, let it reveal to you new truths, and let it renew truths as well. You should always be learning new truths from the Word of God. Always be learning new truths. They're out there for you to be learning. I also wrote it this way in mind. Receive, give, and endure. Because this is the cycle that not everybody gets into. Maybe some can get into the reveal, the renew, and the resist. But folks, you've got to get into this part of the cycle as well. So write this in there if you've got room down there at the bottom. Receive, give, and endure. Receive the word from others. Other gifts that are in the body of Christ. Receive the word from others. Give what you learn to others. Package it up. Give it out to other people. Find opportunity. Here's someone who needs the Word of God that's in you. And give it to others. And endure the persecution that will come. In the receiving, persecution is primarily spiritual. When you receive from other gifts, the persecution that comes is primarily spiritual. Not entirely, but primarily. When you give, it becomes more natural. It comes from other people. But when you have done the first thing, you have revealed, you have renewed, and you have resisted, you can hold up against that. So that when you get into that part of receiving, giving, and enduring, this is an area that most Christ, a lot of Christians do not get into. They become sponges and they just soak up whatever they can get. The purpose of receiving the Word is to give it out to the people you are around. The unsaved people that you are around. The saved people people that you are around the believers who don't have faith in god the believers who don't have trust in god the believers who have issues you have been given the word of god and it should be sharp and alive on the inside of you and you will find people to give it to and as you do and the more vocal you give with the giving the more vocal comes the persecution but you can endure it and you can resist the notion to quiet down and to not take it. I've heard this from people. I'm actually shocked me the first time I heard it, but I've heard it a few other times since then. But heard this from people where they got out of a faith church simply because people around them persecuted them too much. They asked, well, you're one of those nuts. Well, you're one of those people who does this, believes that. And so they just figured it was going to be easier in their life, with their family, with people that weren't in their family, easier if they just got away from all that. It's out there. <laughs> it is out there. You will receive persecution. Jesus promised persecution would come with blessings. He promised it would come with the Word. He promised it would come. But the Word of God is a stabilizing force. You need to stay with it. You need to keep on going with it. When I'm in my shop, when I'm cutting the lawn... Whatever it is I'm doing, I have my headphones on. I am always listening to something. I'm pumping all the information I can get into me. I don't have downtime. I keep it going. 
You've got to keep receiving. Then you've got to keep giving, finding those opportunities and put that back on out. But don't let others come on in. Don't let people get into your life. Don't let thoughts get in your life to begin to erode how you renew yourself on the Word of God, how you get the Word of God revealed to you. Don't let that wander away. Understand, the reason that we are here, the reason other believers are here, the reason that other gifts are put into the body of Christ is to bring more revelation to you, more renewal to you, so that you can resist. Too many times people receive from people. Don't receive from people. Receive from offices. Receive from gifts. When I received from Brother Hagen, I didn't receive from Kenneth E. Hagen. I received from the office that he sat in. When I received from Pastor Bob Yenyon, I didn't receive from him as Bob Yenyon. I received it from him as my pastor. When I received from others that Doug Jones, I didn't receive from Brother Doug Jones as Doug Jones. I received from him from the office of a teacher. When I can listen to Brother Copeland, I don't have to receive from him as Brother Copeland, Kenneth Copeland. I can receive from him from the office of a prophet. I don't have to like everything about these people because I'm not receiving from them as a person. I've received from them as an office. And you know, sometimes I don't like all the things that they have to say, all the things that they do. It doesn't make any difference. Some of them even like cats. (laughs) And I still receive from them. Of course you do. It doesn't it doesn't matter. You have to be able to separate the person from the office. God has placed into the church pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, apostles, offices for the purpose of building up the body, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Receive, give, and endure. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Don't ever settle for a less word. I listen to a lot of word. I don't listen to a whole lot of people. But I listen to a lot of word. I'm picky about it. If a person does not preach faith in God, they're out. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I want people who believe God, who are going to encourage me to have faith in God and keep me going in that direction. Because you all know we face some troubles. We face some problems. And how many of you all know the outcome of everything you're facing right now? You can know the outcome as you get into the Word of God. Father God, You said, I succeed. You said, I win. You said, I am the victor. So I know the outcome. I don't know how you're bringing it about just yet, but I know what the outcome is. But you all know, you've been in, you faced some times and you didn't feel that. You sat there and said, all right, I know you said this in your Word, but I'm not feeling that right now. You know what's happening? Your, your gyroscope's getting a little bit slowed down in there. And you've you got to be careful. You could be tipped over. Don't let that happen. Get on in there and say, Father God, I am going to believe you. I am going to stand. If there's a problem in my life, you show it to me. I'm not making any promises trying to win you over by bartering with you. Or, you know, God, you give me this and I'll give you that. Not doing that, Father God. I am approaching you through faith. Faith in the name of Jesus. Faith in what you said in your word. And I've got every reason in the world to doubt it, but I choose not to. 
I will believe what your word says. I will go in your direction. I will get around like-minded people and they will talk faith to me. Make sure you do that. That's the purpose of believers. We didn't get into that one, but I had that in your outline. Purpose of believers. Get around like-minded people. I've exhorted you how many times to come out and eat with us after church on Sunday. I appreciate the dozen of you who've listened. Some of you do try and do it. I know you can't do it every week. But get, get on out there. Fellowship with people. Build up some relationships there. And talk with folks. And get encouraged into the Word of God. And know, hey, this world seems to be going down fast. That's alright. Our God is greater. Our God is the victor. And even though I hear our country and China talking about a one world currency. Our government and China talking about a one world currency. Of course, they own most of our currency, so. <laughs> but can you imagine that? Even though I look at the figures on the army that's in China and it has grown to the highest it has ever been. Am I going to get nervous and scared? Ooh, glory to God. We're getting closer. How many of y'all ready to get on the elevator and get out of here? I am. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, it's not coming soon enough for me. You know, all of our problems are gone. We don't have to face any payback of any debt. And nothing. We're just out of here. Jesus comes back. It's all gone. That's just the best way to, to get on going with all things. So don't get all nervous about it. Don't get all concerned. Don't get all worried. The governments all across the face of this world have been moving in a direction of the end times. They've been doing it for a long time. It isn't anything recent. It has been every time we've gone through the end times classes, we've shown you where the current governments and what they are doing. And they're all involved. There is no righteous government that I know of that's not involved in all these things. They're all out there. They're all getting involved. But you don't have to be in fear. Get around like-minded people. How many of you do this test on your own? How many times are you around like-minded people who, if you said something in doubt and unbelief, would slap you across the face. What are you doing talking like that? Or how many times you get around people who, yeah, I know what you're going through. It's hard for me too. I don't know how we're going to make it. I don't know how this is going to go. How many get around people like that? They're easy to find those kind of people. They're all over the place. But you need to get around some like-minded people on a regular basis that encourage you and say, I am going in the way of faith. I am going in the way of belief. I will not doubt, but I will continue to go on. Hang on to that. It is not easy to do, but it is very doable. Very doable. As long as you do what God says. Keep getting into the Word. There's going to be new truth you need to learn. There's going to be old truth you need to be renewed on. And when you are, you can resist whatever comes your way. Father, we thank You for the help that You give us in Your Word. You are our light. The Word of God is our light. The Holy Spirit enlightens us about that light so that we have understanding of it. Thank You for the way that it points the direction, that it spotlights the stumbling blocks and helps us to stay on our feet. The enemy would love to knock us down, to distract us, to pull us in a direction that doesn't have consequences now that we can see, but does down the road. But we want to stay in your way. We thank you for the help that you give us in it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.